Today's reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 2. All of 1 Timothy chapter 2, that's verses 1 to 15. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour. He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, sorry, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Have you ever noticed the importance of good customer service? There's a cafe that I go in sometimes, uh, and whilst the coffee's great and the food's fine, there's a lady who serves there who always seems genuinely affronted that you've gone into her cafe and ordered some food or a coffee. She kind of brings the whole experience down. One person not reflecting that actually how good the cafe is, how good the quality is, and how good the rest of the staff are. Imagine if all the staff were like that, no one would ever go in that cafe. Well, what about us when we're together as a church? How can we, when we gather together as church, be a gospel-shaped gathering? That is, how can we best live out, point to, make known and celebrate the good news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners? So that's the context of today's passage. Paul's given Timothy the task of helping the church at Ephesus stick to the gospel, fighting to silence false teachers and teaching that distracts from the gospel, and instead keeping on track with being about Jesus and his grace and patience in saving us, for everything to be shaped by the gospel. And in chapter 2, he moves on to a section about how specifically our gatherings together as church are to be shaped by the gospel. 3.15, Paul says this. He's telling Timothy these things, that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So I've broken the chapter up into gospel-shaped prayer, gospel-shaped practicalities, and gospel-shaped learning. And we'll spend most of our time on the last one, 11 to 15, because those verses 
rub up the wrong way against our culture. It can sound a bit alien to our modern ears, so we need to do a bit more work to understand them. Well, first then, what's the first thing a church should be about in response to God's grace to us in Christ? Gospel-shaped prayer. Our mission to be shaped by the gospel and to share the gospel begins on our knees. Verse 1, I urge then that, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Notice how all-encompassing these verses are. For all people, verse 2, for all those in authority. And the aim? Peaceful and quiet lives. The kind of lives that point to Jesus. Lives that demonstrate the same patience that God has had with us. Lives that promote peace. Not peace just for its own sake. Our prayers are for an environment in which we can share Jesus and live Christian lives in response to his grace. So we should pray for our leaders and the bigger picture national peaceful and quiet lives where the gospel can spread and pray for people in our own lives. So do your conversations, do your Facebook posts demonstrate that you are seeking to live a quiet and peaceful life or something else? Well, pray that at work, in your family, with your friends, as much as it's up to you, that you're not the one that is hard to get on with, that you're one of the easiest people to get on with. Pray for a life and relationships that give the gospel the best chance of being heard. Verse 3, this is good and pleases God because verse 4, God wants all people to be saved. That's why our prayers are to be for all people, all those in authority. All people because, verse 5, there's only one God. So there isn't a subset of humanity who can be saved in some other way. There's only one true God and only the one and only way of being in right relationship with him is through Jesus, his mediator. So mediator means Jesus is our go-between between us and God. Jesus stands with us before God and says, it's all right, he's with me. He's all right, I'll vouch for him. Jesus is our mediator and he pays our ransom. See, our sin incurs a cost. God's right and fair anger with us. There's a debt to be paid. And on the cross, Jesus has paid that debt, paid that ransom with his own suffering and death. So that when we trust and depend on him, our debt is paid, cleared. We're free from the debt we owe. Free to live for Jesus, for his glory, not just to save our own neck. John 3.16 puts it like this. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In this way. That's how God's loved us. We pray for all because there is no alternative. You can't shop around for salvation. And praying as our first priority as church is gospel shaped because it expresses that we're utterly dependent on God. 
that we can't save ourselves or anyone else, but that God does it all. So are you praying for the people, people you know to be saved? Because verse four, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now we don't know who will be saved, but God wants all, as in no exception, no exclusions, to have the offer. So just think, if that's true, and you are the only Christian that lots of people in your life know, why do you think God might have put you in their lives? Well, wanting the gospel to go out to all means that there are gospel-shaped practicalities we must live out. Our next heading, gospel-shaped practicalities. There are two problems in the Ephesian church that Paul addresses, problems that might put people off Jesus. Angry disputes amongst men and immodest clothing amongst women. Verse 8, therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works. So the practical thing blokes need to attend to is to pray. And it's not the position of their hands that's important, but rather the heart attitude it demonstrates. Submitting to God in prayer instead of taking matters into your own hands or fists. So instead of shaking fists at each other, raising them to God in prayer. It's a simple, practical thing to do that kind of short circuits, disputes and waffle and false teaching and turns us back to God really quick, pronto. Reminds me of an old work colleague of mine, Lindsay, who sadly passed away. But she was like an older sister to me at work and she had a brilliant turn of phrase and was really great at putting me back in my place in an instant. So if ever I was poking my nose in or getting riled up about something, she'd say simply, coil your neck in, Colin. Coil your neck in. It was short, sharp and effective. Just like turning to God in prayer. Instead of turning to your next great comeback and gotcha moment. But more generally, men, let's resolve, me included, to take the initiative in getting each other and our families praying. And that can be awkward at first, but you soon get used to just dropping into prayer as your first reflex. And of course, men, if you're up at 6.30 on a Tuesday morning, or set your alarm for 6.30 Tuesday morning and join our men's Zoom prayer group. Well, the women, Paul's addressing, they're to be gospel-shaped in the way that they dress. So that is because Jesus was modest, decent, and not about showy displays for his own sake. So women are to promote the gospel by dressing modestly. So dressing modestly with decency and propriety, that's, so not wearing clothes that are too expensive, too sexually provocative, or too exhibitionists. You know, people remember your clothes more than you. 
Uh, that same friend I was telling you about, Lindsay, uh, we had another colleague and she had dresses that Lindsay would say belonged to the Barely There collection. Those are inappropriate for Christian women. Uh, Paul gives examples of fancy hairstyles, jewellery or expensive clothes. And it's not a ban on those things. It's not wrong for a woman, or indeed a man, to want themselves to look good, to present themselves well. And this is, this is not a call to look daggy or for women to hide their femininity. Now, yes, women and men should helpfully cover up enough. But blokes, I want to say to you, really, if, if a woman looks attractive to you in her clothes, well, you need to take responsibility for how you decide to think about that. Uh, she hasn't done anything wrong by presenting nicely. Now, the focus is on dressing to please God. See, clothes are a language. Uh, I've got a very limited vocabulary. But clothes, they say something about us, don't they? And we don't want our, what our appearance says to be at odds with or distract from the gospel. We don't want our clothes to say, I'm, I spend selfishly, I'm vain, I'm a big deal around here. Instead, we're to have more interest in good deeds, prayer, evangelism, hospitality and so on, as showing what we're about, more than our outward appearance. And if we stay focused on those good deeds, stay gospel-centred, then we'll get better at getting our clothing right. So to recap, the flow so far. As a church, we're to be gospel-shaped in being dependent in prayer for all people with the aim that we can live lives sharing the gospel and living gospel-shaped lives freely. Uh, practically, we're to respond to the peace and order Jesus brings us with God by being God-centred and other people-centred like Jesus is in not fighting, in praying and in how we dress. And so now Paul continues to expand on what a woman adorning herself with good deeds appropriate for women who confess to worship God looks like when it comes to gospel-shaped learning. Verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, um, th those words can sound almost alien in the culture we live in. It's almost like this feels like this should be spoken in kind of a, a 1940s newsreel voice, you know. I, w I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. That kind of oh, sounds almost old fashioned to our modern ears. Because our culture says, not only are women equal to men, but also in nearly every way, men and women are the same. And if you dare suggest anything different, well, you're just part of the problem of oppressing women based on their gender. Yet here is Paul saying what women can and can't do in the church gathering. And I get that if you're a woman who's been hurt or oppressed by men, who's been sinned against by men, 
it can be very hard to hear these verses as anything other than you're inferior, you can't be trusted, and you're not worth listening to. But I want to assure you that that is not what this is about. That's not why Paul is saying this. Paul's not saying this because he thinks women are inferior to men, or that they're less intelligent, or that women are more prone to sin, or especially more disruptive. Those are not the reasons he's saying this. This prohibition for church gatherings is because men and women are equal but different. Equal but different. So to see how these verses are good for women and for men, let's go through them carefully and then look at Paul's reasoning behind them in verses 14 and 14 and 15. Uh, 13, 14 and 15, sorry. So in summary, Paul says four things. Verse 11, that a woman should, should learn in a particular way. Verse 12, that she should not teach in a particular way. Uh, verses 13 and 14, that there are very fundamental reasons for this. And verse 4, but there's important assurance, reassurance in verse 15. So verse 11, the main verb is to learn, and it's imperative verb, it's a command, so it's women get learning. But learn what? Well, in the context of the letter, it tells us that it's the learning is of the sound teaching that accords with the gospel. All those gospel things that Timothy is being told to get the Ephesian church to stick to. So women should learn this in quietness. Now quietness here is the same as in verse 2. It's not silence like in some translations, but rather it's a stance of learning, an approach to learning that is listening and accepting, as opposed to being belligerent and antagonistic. So a curious learner, not a resistant know-it-all. Like a disciple, not like a Pharisee. A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. Now, if we can I reckon, if we can get our heads around what the Bible means by submission, we'll be a long way to seeing that Paul isn't just being a misogynist here. The problem is it, we've twisted in everyday use the word submission to mean being subservient to mean being a doormat, to being overly passive and not asserting yourself. But the biblical idea of submission is this. Here's a definition for you. Christian believers are called to recognise, acknowledge and welcome the responsibilities God has given to others for our welfare. Christian believers are called to recognise, acknowledge and welcome the responsibilities God has given to others for our welfare. So biblical submission is a positive thing and it doesn't mean the one doing the submitting is inferior to the one they're submitting to. So Jesus himself submits to God the Father. Yeah, he's equal in importance with him. A wife submits to her husband's self-sacrificial, putting her first. 
A church submits to her pastor's care. Civilians, we submit to our government's authority where we can in good conscience. So submission is about, instead of us pursuing individual expression and the power to be independent in everything, biblical submission says there's a better way. Giving, each other, giving, over, giving ourselves over to each other's differing roles in a way that means we're in mutual dependence. It keeps us together and makes us more than we would be apart. So in our church gathering, this submission in learning from men, it, it's not an order to just take in unquestioningly any old rubbish from any bloke. Now this biblical submission only makes sense in the context of recognising the responsibility of particular qualified men to self-sacrificially care for women in teaching them. Let's keep moving. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach. Now, this can't mean that women can never teach or do any ministry in any way, in any situation, because there are loads of examples of women doing just that, doing loads of ministry in the New Testament. Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, women pray and prophesy. In Acts, Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila teach Apollos. In Romans 16, there's Phoebe and other women, loads of other women mentioned. But there does seem to be a difference in the New Testament between small, what I might call small t teaching, like in the examples I've just given, and capital T teaching, the teaching. Um, so this is the teaching referred to in chapter 413, where Timothy is to um, devote himself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. This is describing the authoritative, formal, ongoing instruction of God's people in God's truth, from God's word, in the context of the gathered church. So when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach a man, he's not saying that a woman should never convey information of any kind to a man. He's talking about this particular essential activity in the Christian fellowship, the teaching. And this is the teaching that we're trying to do in these sermons, these talks that are the centerpiece of our services. Now, they're not the centerpiece because of me, because I'm all that, but because of my responsibility to attempt to speak God's word authoritatively into our lives, to speak to our conscience. And it's assuming that this particular kind of authoritative teaching in the gathering that Paul is forbidding a woman to do. Verse 12, again, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Authority. Now, authority here is the flip side of submission, verse 11. So authority you can define by responsibilities. So, for example, you'll submit to a police officer if they direct you in traffic or pull you over in traffic. But you wouldn't then let them tell you what to have on your car stereo. Because one is their responsibility, 
and so they have authority, and the other isn't, so they don't. So women are to submit to those with the authority, so men who are given the teaching, overseeing with an activity focused on teaching, given that task, and we'll meet them in chapter 3 next week. So they're to submit to their authority, but verse 12, women are not to assume that same authority because that is not their responsibility. But why? Why aren't women given this responsibility? Why does it have to be women submitting to men? However good submitting is, why not the other way around? Well, some have argued that this is a very specific situation, specific to Paul's patriarchal society they lived in, and so it doesn't apply today. Or that it's only about a specific situation of women trying to usurp authority and causing chaos in the church, or being particularly disruptive, or because perhaps women were the false teachers that Timothy has to combat. And I can give you further reading all that, but none of it stacks up against the evidence very well. At best, it's guesswork. And more importantly, none of those reasons are the reason Paul gives for why he says what he says. We don't have to guess Paul's reasoning because he tells us his reasoning in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul's taken us back to Genesis 2 and the order that God created. Now this is not about saying Adam was more important than Eve. No, it's about the design and the purpose that God had for them. They're created equal, so Genesis 2.22, Eve is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. They're equal, but they're each given different roles, different responsibilities, but they're not independent of one another. So Adam's responsibility is to care for Eve as his helper. Eve's responsibility as Adam's helper are different to his responsibilities. So if you really want to see the differences, try reading Genesis 2 but swapping the male and female, swapping Adam and Eve and see how they read differently. See there's an order in God's original unspoiled design for humanity. Men are to care for and protect and put themselves out for women. And women's role is to honour and respect that role. And that's a good thing. It only sounds bad to our modern ears because we hear care and protect as dominate and patronise. Or it sounds bad because we say women have their own agency. They, they don't need a man's care or protection. But this mutual submission, having different roles, that's how God himself is in his Trinitarian nature. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, that this order should be affirmed and expressed in the teaching and the authority that orders the life of the church. His reasoning continues in verse 14. Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, 
let's clear this up. Paul is not saying that women are more gullible. That would be offensive. And Paul's not saying that women are more prone to, tr prone to sin. It's not the case. So what is he saying? He's saying that God's help and order between himself and humanity and creation. He gave Adam responsibility over creation and made Eve his helper. But in Genesis 3, that's all reversed. The created thing, the serpent, deceives Eve and she in turn involves Adam in the deception and he sins against God. So the order God set up, overturned. And Paul's saying, look at the fall. Look how we disregarded the order that God created. And look why that got us. But now having been saved and ransomed from that fall, we shouldn't now carry on disregarding God's good order. So Paul's reason for women not, uh, sorry, Paul's reason for women to learn in submission and not assume authority is so that church gatherings are gospel shaped because they're modelled on the original before sin order of things. The order that the gospel restores. So practising good works means seeking to restore God's order. Jesus came to restore things back to how they're supposed to be between us and God. And so we want our gatherings to be orderly and have our male-female relationships show the order that he designed them with. Each taking up our responsibility and each helping the opposite sex to fulfil their responsibilities, their God-given role. And now Paul, never far away from teaching the gospel, finishes this section with an assurance. Verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Now what, you may ask, does that mean? Well, let's have a look at what's easy to understand and that will give us the gist. So if we take out through childbirth, it reads, women will be saved if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. So like that, it's just a straight up encouragement that if women stick with the gospel, they are saved by grace. So what's with the childbirth thing? Well, it seems that Paul's still talking about Genesis 3 uh, as God brings judgment. So he could be talking about the birth of the child, one of Eve's offspring who will crush Satan's head, looking forward to Jesus' final victory over Satan, pointing out that salvation comes through a woman giving birth to a child. Or he could be referring to the fact that under God's judgment, childhood, childbirth will now be painful, yet that hope remains that we come through that judgment full judgment is withheld that there's hope on the other side of that judgment and I think I favour the second one because given half a chance to talk about Jesus Paul always takes it either way women will be saved like all people 
by grace. So to sort gospel-shaped learning in this section, the gospel-shaped learning in the church gathering means men and women have different roles and responsibilities. But please hear again. Men and women are absolutely equal in standing and value and giftedness before God. So what does this mean for our church? It means that my role, the senior pastor role, will only ever be for a male. It means that this medium right now that we're trying to make the authoritative, authoritative main weighty teaching of the word event of the week, the weekly sermon, that will only be done by men. But practically that means nearly everything else Everything except this bit of authoritative teaching, elder role, is open to both genders. So women can have ministry positions. Women can speak in church. Women can teach in loads of situations. For example, our network lead pastor, Paul Harrington, he says the person who's taught him most from the Bible in his life is his wife, Sue. And that's okay because she hasn't done that in the context of an authority role that wasn't hers to do so. Now, I'm not sure how all this sits with you. And let me say, there are great Bible teachers, great pastors who arrive at different conclusions, people whose ministry I would respect and gladly sit under. And we can still get on and agree to disagree but it's still important because one of us is getting it wrong. And so one of us, well, our churches will be missing out in some way. But if this raises questions for you, even if you disagree with what I said today, please come and talk to me about it. That's the right thing to do, I think. That's the right way to learn quietly in this instance. Just don't leave it festering. Let's address it. Talk about it. To finish then, let's recap. As we gather as church, we're shaped and motivated by the gospel. So we're first dependent in prayer for all people because we're totally, we are totally dependent on God. And we pray with the aim that we can live lives sharing the gospel and living gospel-shaped lives because we know that God wants to save all people and that they can only be saved through Jesus. So make prayer your reflex. Lead your families in prayer and get praying for the people in your life that God has made you the missionary to. Practically, we're to respond to the peace and order Jesus brings us with God by being God-centered and other people-centered like Jesus is, in not fighting, in praying, and in how we dress. So diffuse your disputes with prayer. Dress to impress God. Clothe yourself with good deeds. And in our orderly learning as we gather, we celebrate God's good and perfect design of making us equal but different. So learn quietly, submitting to the good authority structures God has designed for you. Verse 3 and 4 again. This is good 
and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people.